Welcome to Dispatches, the official podcast for the Journal of the American Revolution. The Journal of the American Revolution publishes weekly online at www.allthingsliberty.com. For the latest in research, reviews, and commentaries, America's Most Important History is available free of charge at the Journal of the American Revolution. I do think the story tells us a little bit about how people wanted to remember the role of women in the revolution on the frontier. Uh, you know, if, if we had the mythical Molly Pitcher of Monmouth, we also have, you know, the heroic Betty Zane of Wheeling. That's Journal of the American Revolution contributor Eric Sterner talking about the Battle of Fort Henry, perhaps the last battle of the American Revolution. And he's our guest today. I'm Brady Kreitzer. And this is Dispatches. This episode was brought to you by Casemate, publishers of The Quaker and the Gamecock, Nathaniel Green, Thomas Sumter, and The Revolutionary War for the South by Andrew Waters. Available now wherever books are sold. Hello ladies and gentlemen and welcome back to Dispatches. I'm your host, Brady Kreitzer. On today's episode, we have a return guest, Eric Sterner, to discuss what really could be considered the last battle of the American Revolution, the siege of Fort Henry, and the pretty remarkable circumstances that surrounded it. This is something that, if you have followed my career, either my articles on the Journal of the American Revolution website or any number of my books, uh, that I care very deeply about. It's where I do all my own research, that is to say, the war in the West, with a focus on the Ohio frontier And this is one of these amazing episodes about the American Revolution that really kind of expand our understanding of the entire event. In 1782, while uh, our diplomats are ironing out the details of the Treaty of Paris, because remember, we all know the war ends at Yorktown, right? Um, While that's going on across the pond, so to speak, uh, there's still wars going on here. There's still battles going on here in North America. Uh, And the siege of Fort Henry, a very fiery, hot, uh, really Indian battle in many ways, uh, but very much part of the American revolutionary story, is going on at the exact same time. Uh, So if the war was over, nobody told the people in and around Wheeling, West Virginia that day. And stories like that happen all over the American Revolution. It's why I love studying the war in the West, because it takes everything you know and just tears it down. The war in the West is nasty and brutal. It follows none of the rules we like. Nobody wears uniforms. Uh, there are no generals on battlefields. It's really one continuous barroom brawl. And that's what makes contributors like Eric Sterner and, art- and articles like Eric's uh, really I think so important to broadening our understanding of this entire revolutionary period as a whole. So without further ado, sit back, relax, and enjoy our interview with Eric Sterner. Eric Sterner, welcome back. Thanks for having me. Tell us about your background. Uh, Well, by education and and, uh, career, I was working in national security and political science for a long time as a national security analyst. Um... I did both my master's degree, both of them in political science and national security. So that's kind of where I came from. Um, I've been writing about history.
industry off and on for a long time, but um, really turned to it uh, more intensely since uh, probably about five years ago. What first drew your interest into this topic? It's kind of a long story. I was I was studying George Rogers Clark a little bit and looking at his Illinois campaign, um, and that took me to William Crawford's campaign across Ohio in 1782, and then that took me to uh, Ned and Hutton uh, massacre in 1782, which I'd written about for the journal in the past. <clears throat> and in the process of looking at all these things, I I really started broadening my view of the war in the Ohio Valley and coming across a lot of really interesting uh, stories and things that I think most people, myself included, weren't aware of. Um, And in the course of doing some more research, I just came across this last siege and I thought, wow, what a great story. I haven't seen too much out of it about there. Let's dig into it a little bit. And uh, that's how I ended up with the article. Tell us a little bit about the history of colonial wheeling West Virginia. Well, Wheeling was settled, uh, I guess Ebenezer Zane and some of his family members uh, went and basically made clams, claims uh, around Wheeling in 1769. They used an old process where you girdle trees. Um, basically, you cut a circle around the bark, the bark starts to die off, the tree dies. Um, and that was one way of making a, establishing a claim. Uh, the French had actually laid claim to the area in 1749, and if I recall correctly, there's one of those lead... Uh, tablets that they buried up and down the Ohio Valley in town. Uh, Christopher Gist, who was a notable frontiersman, came through around 1750. Um, but the Zanes came in, staked a claim, and then moved there in 1770. So it was Ebenezer Zane, some of his brothers. Uh, and by 1774, they'd built 25 cabins. Wheeling is well situated on the Ohio River uh, at the junction with the creek. And there's a bluff overlooking the river uh, where a lot of these uh, houses were built, these cabins were built. And then in 1774, uh, you get Dunmore's War. Uh, It's where John Murray, the governor of of colonial Virginia, the Earl of Dunmore, uh, which is why it's called Dunmore's War, uh, essentially went to war with the Shawnee Nation. The Shawnee was a Native American uh, nation primarily situated in Ohio at that point on the Scioto River. And they were going back and forth with the Virginians over hunting rights and property rights in Virginia, in Western Virginia, West Virginia now, uh, in Eastern Kentucky. So this kept escalating. And eventually you got a war. Uh, and what Dunmore decided to do was put two columns together. He was going to invade Shawnee territory. So he starts, you have to start in Pittsburgh because that's how you float down the Ohio. So he's going to have two columns go. One was going to go down the Ohio River from Pittsburgh, march overland through basically Ohio and in towards central Ohio now. And they needed a base of supplies, and Wheeling made the best, best choice. So he built Fort Fincastle there in 1774, and it was built as a supply depot. Uh, it started out as a, about a qu- half-acre parallelogram. The typical way that you built these forts was you'd dig a ditch, a, tr- a trace outline about three feet deep. You'd go find your trees, you'd strip off the, uh, the branches, split them, and then sink them vertically into the ditch as far as they'd go, uh, about that three feet. And then you'd fill in the ditch. So you'd have this wall, a curtain wall of trees, logs standing upright, and they'd reach 10 to 13 feet. And um, 
Fort Fincastle had block houses at each corner, and these were basically fortified buildings, a little bit thicker, uh, so you could fire the length of the wall, and the second floor would overhang the first floor, so you could fire down into attackers. On the inside, there was a barracks, a storehouse, and some interior buildings. Uh, the barracks probably was a little taller than the walls, because later we find reports of a swivel gun on the roof. Uh, so that's how Fort Fincastle got its start, and its position or use as a supply depot really gave uh, the town a good start in growing. What was the strategic role of the region of modern wheeling throughout the Revolution? Well, it remained a supply depot during the Revolution. Uh, during Dunmore's War, the second column had advanced down the Kanawha River uh, and basically built what became Fort Randolph. So Wheeling was about halfway between the two. So it was a good stopping place and a good supply depot for um, forces moving up and down the Ohio River. When the war started, it was renamed Fort Henry after Patrick Henry. And in the West, the word of war set off a pretty, pretty significant amount of fear that the Indian War that had just finished, and or more or less finished, would resume. Uh, because they were still working out some of the peace agreements, and there was a lot of sniping back and forth, political complaining uh, that the Indians weren't living up to their agreement and vice versa. At various points during the war, it was garrisoned by the militia, so there'd be a standing garrison, mostly a Virginia militia. Um, they'd be stocking supplies and sending patrols out up and down the river, or back and forth across the river to guard the interior. Um, by 1777, the Western War had really heated up, and the British were more aggressively supporting raids. Um, so you got the first attack uh, on uh, Fort Henry in September 1777. Now, the, the, the Indians lacked artillery. They couldn't reduce a fort. So they could try to starve a garrison out, but if the garrison stocked up food, Indians didn't have a lot of supplies. <laughs> they couldn't wait around too well. So sieges were a tough thing for them. So the typical thing that they wanted to do uh, was do an infantry assault, uh, or better yet, burn the fort down. So they'd rush the fort, try to set the walls on fire, and then rush back. Uh, in 1777, the Indians weren't up for that. Um, so they basically um, failed to take it by surprise, and they burned all the uh, farms around, spoiled the crops, and so on. There had been enough warning for the fort to be well defended by the locals by the time the Indians got there. A large raiding party passed through in 1781, but they really weren't interested in Fort Henry. Uh, they were interested in moving past it uh, and into uh, central Virginia and just the other side of the Appalachians, so the western side of the Appalachians, but farther east from the Ohio River. Um, and that's kind of the role it had played. It was, you know, technically a backwater. The front lines, of course, um, were up closer to Pittsburgh uh, or down near um, Kentucky. Um, but it was that critical waypoint up, going up and down the Ohio River. Talk, if you could, a little bit about the Zane family. Mm -hmm. uh, Ebenezer Zane, uh, for whom a town, uh, for a member of his family, there's a town named for a member of his family in Ohio, it's called Zanesville. Uh, he was born in 1747 um, in Moorfield, Virginia, which is on the south branch of the Potomac, so farther east. Uh, he had four brothers, including one brother, Silas, who figures pretty prominently in the sister, and the youngest sister, Elizabeth, who went by Betty. She was born in 1759. 
Um, like a lot of Virginians, you know, the good land in the east and, and even the central part of Virginia had been bought up, so they looked west. Um, and he and Silas and his brother James uh, did some exploring, decided that Wheeling was a good place to be. Uh, it was situated on a creek, known as Wheeling Creek now. Curiously, on the other side of the Ohio, there's another creek, so it's kind of a crossroads um, to the interior of Ohio and Virginia. Um, so he moved there in 1770 um, after setting his 1769 claim. And then um, so they kind of dominated the place. Uh, they founded the town after all. They made the majority of the population. The McCulloch family also, also uh, joined them. Um, so you'd have this small families, but these are extended families that basically settled Wheeling, created it, and would be instrumental after the war in, in moving into Ohio and down further down the Ohio. While negotiators were ironing out the Treaty of Paris, uh, what was the state of the war in the West, particularly the Ohio country? Uh, one way that I like to look at it is the, the, the wars between whites and Indians in the West. You can look at this period from the French and Indian War through the end of the Northwest Indian Wars, basically 1755 through 1795, as one long period of frontier warfare. And so that's kind of how I, I frame this uh, in my own mind. And then that, that conflict, that warfare, ebbed and flowed based on what the Europeans and the Americans were doing in the region. So the Indians were sort of siding with the French in the French and Indian War because they, they got the best deal when it came to asserting their own uh, priorities. Then they sided with the English government in the, during the Revolution because that served their priorities better than dealing with the Americans who kept pushing west. Um, so if you, if you situate it that way, when we get to 1782, for the Indians, for the Native Americans... The war in the West hasn't really stopped. It's not going to stop, uh, as we know, the way that the things after went, continued after the war. Uh, so the end of the revolution, may, or the coming end, which I think people recognized, may have meant a lot to uh, the English and the Americans who were negotiating in, in large part over the terms that would be settled in the West, how far American claims would extend past the Appalachians. Um, for the Indians who lived there, you know, they weren't part of the Treaty of Paris, so as far as they're concerned, it doesn't matter what the Americans and the English decide. Um, the British, for their part, in the West and centered around Detroit, still committed to fighting because they wanted to preserve their claims west of the Appalachians. They were essentially looking uh, still to contain the Americans east of the Appalachians, or at least east of the Ohio. Um, the Indians were still committed to resisting white settlement, and the Americans were looking at advancing their claims all the way to the Mississippi, which is, of course, what they got in the Treaty of Paris. Um, but that war is still going on with raiding parties going back and forth across the Ohio. Virginia and the Continental Congress, by 1782, really lacked the resources now to defend the river. Uh, the river line, and increasingly <laughs> they weren't interested in doing it. They were both exhausted, everybody's broke, um, and they just want to get back on with life. Um, so, uh, for their part, the British were still supplying the Indian raiding parties uh, and sending rangers with them because the war's still on. Fort Henry, because it had become a backwater, uh, was not regularly garrisoned at all, and it had become sort of a place of refuge. 
So when word was out that a raiding party was in the area, all the local families and anybody they could reach in the county would flee to the fort uh, and then defend the fort. So they'd, they'd put their, their, their farms at risk, but they would at least be safe. Now, in the summer of 1782, uh, the British and the Native Americans hold a conference or council, and they agree on a two-pronged attack across the Ohio in the summer of 1782. The uh, first prong is going to be about 600 warriors and some British loyalists and officers would invade Kentucky. And that ends in the Battle of Blue Licks in August, and, and that turns out to be an American defeat. Uh, the second column was going to attack into northwest Virginia. Uh, that second column was del- delayed a little bit, in part because uh, they were fearing that George Rogers Clark and some of the folks in Kentucky were going to attack the Indian towns uh, in central Ohio. Uh, that didn't come up to, come to pass. Blue Licks happens, and the second column finally moves into um, Virginia in September. Could you take us through the attack on Fort Henry? Uh, well, in September, uh, Captain Andrew Bratt, who is a member of Butler's Rangers, uh, and grabs 50 of his men, uh, I think they're all volunteers, and about 250 to 300 uh, Native Americans, and they set out, and they're, they're bound for Fort Henry. Um, the scouts in the area around Wheeling, uh, they were out, but not in great numbers. Um, so on Wednesday, uh, September 11th, uh, a scout named John Lynn, who figures in a lot of accounts as a minor character, uh, was out scouting, and he spotted the advancing Indians and British just across the Ohio River. So he rushes back to Wheeling to sound the alarm. There's not a lot of time because there's not a lot of uh, distance between him uh, and the Indians and the Indians in Wheeling. Uh, so that really leaves just enough time for the locals in the town to rush to the fort, supplies, ammunition, and gunpowder that they can carry sort of in their arms, on their backs, and, and shove in the fort. The fort is normally empty at this point, so there are no regular provisions stored there. Um, Silas Zane commands the fort. He's got about 16 to 20 men, depending on, on uh, which account you want to follow and roughly 40 women and children inside the fort. Um, So it's a very small number. He's outnumbered. Um, But he does have the advantage of walls and that swivel gun on top of the barracks. Ebenezer Zane watched his house get burned down in the 1777 attack, so he rebuilt it as a blockhouse closer to the fort. He makes a critical decision to stay in his blockhouse. He's got a family, friends, and two slaves, so it's about eight people. He's about 70 yards from the gate, and what that does is it creates a strong point to prevent uh, a rush against the gate. It also makes him a target. Now, because his blockhouse is regularly occupied uh, by somebody, a lot of the gunpowder for the community is stored in that blockhouse. It's safer there than it is in the fort. So the British and the Indians basically march into town. They form lines around the fort, just sort of a loose skirmish line surrounding it. And they approach, and they demand its surrender. Uh, now, this is a simple reason to do that. Bratt's options, Captain Bratt's options are very limited. Again, he lacks the artillery to destroy it or drive people from it. Uh, an infantry assault is risky. He doesn't know how many defenders are inside the fort, uh, and those infantry assaults often fail. Uh, and Native Americans are not prone to make them. This is not their favorite thing to do for obvious reasons. Um, 
Now, he can offer surrender, and he can hope that the uh, Americans will take it, because traditionally, uh, Fort Garrison that surrendered in a military fashion at the beginning of a siege could expect humane treatment from armies. Uh, forts that did not surrender and had to be assaulted at high loss could not expect to receive humane treatment. Uh, the problem here is the Indians and the Native Americans. They did not have a reputation for treating their prisoners humanely. Uh, so, and Bratt's numbers again are 50, and the Indians are considerably larger. So his best bet is to approach under a white flag, um, talk tough, and demand a surrender. Now, Silas Zane refuses. Um, again, we start to get into a how did that refusal occur, and depending on, on the sources you track down, it's a little unclear. Uh, it's not clear whether they taunted the British, stood there silently, said nothing, or fired on a flag of truce. Uh, the best story that we have comes from uh, a survivor. Uh, she was a young girl during the siege, and in her 80s, uh, she remembered that what the garrison did and the people in it did was they raised a ruckus. They made as much noise as they could. Silas was trying to convince Brad that he had more people inside the fort than he actually did. Um, and so the yelling, of course, would have included taunting. Um, the British and the Indians would have, you know, cast dispersions on the swivel gun, which was apparent. Uh, and apparently it did get fired at some point as this taunting is going back and forth, and that sort of put the matter to rest, whether or not the gun was real, which would also explain the, the rumor or the story that they had fired on a flag of truce. So when that gun gets fired, the Indians and the British withdraw uh, out of range and wait for nightfall. Around midnight, they attempt to storm two things, Zane's blockhouse, and light them and the fort, and light them on fire. It's not an infantry assault. They just want to light them on fire. If you can burn them down enough, you can probably get through pretty quickly. Uh, Zane's slave is a man named Sam, and he detects the first attack on the blockhouse and kills the man outright. Uh, the Indians attempt to uh, get close to the fort, but some swift fire in the dark. It's, I guess it's not hard to shoot at people carrying torches, um, generally fail. So there are three attacks on the night of the 11th and the 12th. Now, the story that we get to in terms of what role women played in this, this, uh, this part of the battle changes. Um, it's traditionally accepted that they stayed within the walls, cleaned the guns, cooled the hot barrels, and loaded weapons for the men to fire. Uh, later accounts... Uh, basically have them taking turns at the wall, meaning they would go up to the wall, they'd fire the guns themselves. Uh, there's loopholes cut through in the wall in various places. So, uh, I suspect that probably all of the above happened. Um, frontier folks tended to be rather practical, and the more people pulling triggers that were capable of shooting accurately, the better. But the evidence that's contemporary is very weak. Zane doesn't talk about it in his one-letter report to the Continental officer uh, in command at Fort Pitt. Uh, the swivel gun apparently played a pretty important role in driving those attackers back and keeping them at distance and at range from getting too close to the fort to set the walls on fire. But there's a lot of firing overnight. So you get to September 12th, the morning of the 12th, and there's an interesting story. Uh, this, the swivel gun's effectiveness had really impressed the attackers. So the story that... that um, Oral history and, and local history t 
told for a long time was that the Indians decided to make one of their own out of wood. So they found an old tree, hollowed it out, wrapped it in chains. Um, as it happened, a supply convoy had beached canoes outside wheeling. Um, uh, the Indians found those canoes. They were they had gunpowder in them, so they filled the this, this wooden gun with um, the ammunition that they found, and then fired it at the fort, and it promptly blew up uh, and killed the crew, of course. Uh, now the defenders are allegedly amused. Uh, I'm a little skeptical of that story myself. Uh, it gets repeated several times, but um, the attackers were all familiar with artillery. Um, Brat was an officer. Uh, they'd all been to Detroit. They'd seen the guns at Detroit. They'd probably seen them fired, uh, which was tradition when Indians came in to start a to council with the British commander. Uh, and they were also personally familiar with poorly made rifles blowing up in their faces. So I have a hard time believing that uh, these folks who are, are perhaps not professionally trained in every case, but certainly experienced, decided they could fire a cannon made out of wood. Um, anyway, that's sort of that first part of that story. Um, in the course of the day, in the 12th, they, the garrison spots an African-American near the fort. We never learned his name. Uh, so they fired on him and brought him inside. Now, he claimed to be a prisoner of the Indians, uh, but the garrison didn't trust him. Uh, although, to his credit, he did give an accurate account of the size of the attacking force, uh, which Stane uh, um, included in his report to the Continental. So they basically had a lot of firing going on all night, uh, some fighting on early in the morning, and nothing has happened. So the Indians withdraw to a distance uh, to go to a local spring, uh, and they're sort of out of rifle range. And you get this calm that falls across the battlefield about mid-morning on the 12th. And this is where uh, we get a great story. Uh, the defenders are running low on gunpowder. Uh, as we know, they wasn't stored in the, the, the store in the fort, um, and everybody knows that Zane Ebenezer Zane's got a good store in his blockhouse. So they ask for volunteers to make that run to the blockhouse and get more. And that sort of brings us to Betty Zane and the legend of Betty Zane and Betty's exploit. Who was Betty Zane, and what did she do? Um, as I mentioned earlier, uh, Betty Zane is uh, Ebenezer's younger sister, youngest sister, uh, his only sister. She's a teenager at this point. She volunteers. And the story again goes that um, the soldiers, the, the, the men guarding the fort, objected. They said, oh, a man will be faster. Um, and she, you know, nobly says, steps up and says, yes, but if I'm killed or a man is killed, he'll be more noticed. If I'm killed, you're only down one woman. I don't buy that. Myself, uh, it's very, um, it fits with the times in which those stories were told more than it fits with, I think, the realities of 1782. Um, but by, by all accounts, she is pretty, pretty quick. So she gets rid of sort of excess clothes. Um, she didn't strip down or anything, but petticoats and bustles and things like that to make her run. Uh, the gate gets cracked. She runs for the blockhouse. It's about 70 yards. Now, remember, the Indians are, and the British are at a distance now from the fort. They're out of gunfire range. So she gets to the, the blockhouse. It, it, it appears that the Indians, the British, were all sort of like, well, what's going on here? There's a woman running from the fort. Why is she running from the fort? We can't hit her from here. 
and they're kind of surprised by the fact that suddenly there's this person making this run. So she gets to the blockhouse. Ebenezer lets her in. Um, and he can spare basically a keg of gunpowder. I guess they've got ammunition inside the fort, or at least enough lead. Um, so the question becomes, how did they give her the gunpowder? Uh, one popular story is that uh, they took a tablecloth off the table, wrapped it around her waist in sort of like a pouch, um, and poured the keg's worth of gunpowder in it. Uh, one story is that she just sort of hiked up her skirts, they poured the gunpowder in that. Um, and others are that they just gave her an actual keg. Um, so she runs back to the fort. Um, and this time it's a little different. <laughs> the British and the Indians are at least suspicious, and they started to close in on the fort, wondering what's going on. Um, and they start shooting at her. And she's got to make this 70-yard run, this 70-yard gauntlet of, of Indians, uh, Butler's Rangers from, from Detroit, and all these folks shooting at her and, and threatening to, to kill her, and I'm sure uh, that the garrison hopefully is cheering her on. She makes it back to the fort, and then firing resumes that afternoon. Uh, night comes, there's another infantry attack or an attempt to burn the walls around 10 o'clock. That fails because, of course, the garrison is now uh, fully rearmed with gunpowder. And in the morning of the 17th, or the 13th, I'm sorry, the attackers start to fade away. They just kind of think, well, that didn't work. Uh, let's move on with life, and let's go find some farms to burn. Um, so that's sort of the end of the three-day siege of, of Fort Henry in 1782. Uh, some consider it the last battle of the war. Talk about your process that you review in your article of verifying such a, an outlandish story. Uh, what do the sources say? Is this a real story or perhaps more of a tall tale? It's, it's a hard question. Um, I, generally, if you go read a history of, of Fort Henry or the region of West Virginia or the war on the frontier, it's accepted as fact, and it's repeated as kind of a local legend. And I think they still have a Betty Zane Day in, in Wheeling. Um, so it's become part of, the, uh, part of history. Um, around eight, And the Zanes were very well-known in the area, so they would have had reason to spread it. Um, of course, there were a lot of witnesses, so they would have also had reason to, you know, pat themselves on the back and say what a great, what a great hero Betty Zane was. Um, and then around 1850, 1849, it gets called into question, um, and a woman named Lydia Boggs Kruger uh, starts to say that didn't ever happen, and she was the last one of the two surviving uh, witnesses to the. Um, the battle. She was a child at the time. Uh, a couple things. You don't. Ebenezer makes no mention of Betty Zane's run in his report about the attack. Uh, something so impressive, you might expect it, but his letter report is very short. So the, the lack of evidence in the letter is not necessarily dispositive one way or the other. Um, so you, it all comes down to Lydia Boggs Kruger. Now, there's a historian named Lyman Draper. Anybody who does research on the, on the frontier is going to deal with the Draper Papers, um, which is this massive archive. And Draper grew up after the war. Uh, so he knew some of these people uh, firsthand, but, um, you know, in their old age, or he, or he talked to their children. Uh, and he wanted to write a story of the war on the frontier. So he went up and down the frontier and everywhere else collecting stories. A lot of oral history. Um, 
she gives an inter- Lydia Boggs Kruger gives him an interview. Now she's in her eighties, and he writes down this interview, and then later gets an affidavit. Kruger claims that a, a girl named Molly Scott ran from Zane's cabin to the fort to get the gunpowder, and then returned. She also claims that Scott was never in real danger because the Indians were too far away, and Betty was not in town in 1782. So for a long time, that sort of calls into this question. You've got an eyewitness account, an affidavit, more or less you know, sworn testimony saying it didn't happen, and what we're looking at is a tall tale. Um, no one else was alive to really question it. So a man named William Hinson, a historian, uh, decided to see whether he could put the matter to rest, and he did some real detective work in the 90s, the 1990s. Uh, <clears throat> what he found was that Molly Scott's descendants had always claimed that Betty Zane made the run. Uh, and what he, what Hinson came up with was he decided or concluded that Kruger likely confused the three different attacks, 1777, 1781, and 1782. And Kruger's account, uh, where she and Molly Scott, in that particular instance, visited the blockhouse to resupply it from the fort, uh, followed the 1781 scare, um, where she and and Molly Scott apparently did deliver gunpowder to to Zane's house, but they weren't in any immediate danger because the Indians hadn't quite passed through yet. And Betty Zane was, in fact, out of town in 1781. Um, so he basically concluded that Kruger confused that 1781 attack uh, with the 1782 attack. And with that, he essentially finds that there's more reason to believe the original story than Kruger's deposition. So you can't trust the eyewitnesses, apparently, uh, which I, I thought was an interesting thing, which is why I wanted to talk about that a little bit in the article uh, in terms of, uh, I think, the value of, of Hinton's work. Uh, and the limitations of sort of first-person recollections. What does this episode reveal to us about the revolutionary era as a whole? Uh, well, I think you can walk away with a, with a couple different things from the episode, uh, and I hope from the article. Um, like I mentioned, Kruger's testimony highlights the weakness in first-person accounts, particularly those taken long after actual events. Uh, and William Hinson's work as a historian really highlights the value of doing solid research looking for corroboration and uh, multiple sources uh, to try and, and check the facts out. Uh, I think the, the, the siege itself reminds us that the frontier was really fought by locals, um, that the continental forces, continental officials, continental officers were not in large presence um, on the frontier. Uh, Fort Pitt was one exception, but even at times they couldn't defend Fort Pitt. Um, I do think the story tells us a little bit about how people wanted to remember the role of women in the revolution on the frontier. Uh, you know, if, if we had the mythical Molly Pitcher of Monmouth, we also have, you know, the heroic Betty Zane of Wheeling. Uh, and I think that's important uh, because a lot of times... Uh, they get reduced to um, letter writers or observers, and here you're seeing an active participant in events um, who generally is, genuinely is a heroine of the story. Uh, and that story seems to last pretty well. So I, I think that's my takeaway from it. I, I hope that's what came through in the article. Eric Sterner, 
Thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me. The music played in this episode included works by Kevin McLeod and the Sturbridge Colonial Militia. Any unauthorized reproduction or use of this podcast, without the express written permission of the Journal of the American Revolution, is strictly prohibited. For everyone here at Dispatches, I'm Brady Kreitzer saying so long. <laughs>